wish that there was more proof for the existence of God? Because I can't help but think as I'm reading through my Bible and I'm reading all these incredible stories, I don't understand how any of these people wavered in their faith in God. For example, if I was one of the Israelites that were being pursued by the Egyptian army and we came across the, the Red Sea and we had nowhere to go and it looked like we were going to die or be killed, and all of a sudden, God opened up the Red Sea for us to pass and then collapsed it down on the Egyptian army. Like, incredible. That's it. That's all I would need. I would never need anything else. It doesn't matter if I never felt the presence of God for years. I would point back to that moment in my faith. I would tell everyone who possibly would listen. It would be the anchor of all my faith. I mean, if God caused a donkey to talk to me, I'm in. If I witnessed the, the incredible, miraculous feeding of the 5,000, or as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the water into wine miracle in Cana, if I watched the walls of Jericho just come tumbling down just because we marched around them and blew a trumpet or two, if I watched the widow have, have nothing in her home, but all of a sudden God multiplied the oil that she had over and over until she had an abundance, if I watched Daniel spared from the lion's den when it just seemed like there was no way he was ever going to come out alive of that situation, if I witnessed one of those miracles in my lifetime, I don't think I would need that much more. I mean, how can you see God do something that miraculous and then struggle with your belief? And that leads to the thought, God, why don't you just do something incredible in my life that, that I can't help but believe, that, that I won't go through these periods of time where I struggle a little bit with doubt? God, can you just do something amazing that I can see? And I wonder if God's just like, okay, but how about I create a universe? How about I create a universe so vast and so large, and it, within that universe is this little tiny planet. And, that, and on, the, on that planet, the environment is so precise that if it was just a little different here or a little bit different there, human life could not exist. No, like something better, God, like something amazing. Okay, how about I create life that is so complex, human life that's so complex, so intricate, that, that I'll give it a brain, a brain that sends impulses to the rest of your body. And that brain, those impulses travel at 274 kilometers an hour. You don't even recognize that, that, is, that it's going on. The same brain can hold the same amount of information as a four terabyte hard drive from a computer. Or, or that same brain within a lifetime can recall 150 trillion pieces of information. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, that's okay. But do something truly amazing, God. Isn't that crazy? I mean, there's all kinds of evidence around us that, that our crea the creation around us is so incredible. It's so complex. It's so awe-inspiring. And, and something that complex, that awe-inspiring, always comes from a creator. Yet we look at God and say, why don't you do something awesome? This is a bit of what Jesus was dealing with as he, was, as he wowed the crowds with some of the, the signs and miracles that he did. And yet they were like, more, more, we want to see more. But John, one of Jesus' disciples, he had a front row seat for all the action. Not only did he have a front row seat for all the action, he had a backstage pass. 
So he would watch the miracle happen. He would be right there in the middle of it. And then afterwards, he'd have an opportunity to talk to Jesus about it and ask him questions about what he saw. And so John writes his gospel from what he saw, from what he heard. And what he saw and what he heard was so compelling that it led him to the conclusion that his friend, his rabbi, it was more than good, just a good teacher. I mean, no matter what you've heard about Jesus, no matter what they've said about Jesus, he wasn't a con man. He wasn't an illusionist. He wasn't even just a prophet. He was God in human form, walking, breathing, laughing, crying, and living amongst this ragtag group of guys. And these miracles that would draw crowds from miles away, well, they were awe-inspiring for sure. And some of the healings brought tears to, the, to their eyes as they watched how they impacted the lives of the people around them. Some of the miracles, well, some of the miracles, you just had to be there. But John discovered that there was something more than the obvious impact they had. There was something more than these random acts of kindness. What he saw pointed to the identity of who Jesus really was. There were signs that were right there in front of him the whole time. And he originally came to the conclusion that what he was following maybe wasn't the Messiah, but he was going to be the king of Israel. And if he played his cards right, maybe, just maybe he could go from lowly fisherman to part of the king's council, and then he'd be big time. Then Jesus would be arrested, dragged away, unfairly tried, and crucified and nailed to a cross. It was over. It was all over. But of course, what happens next not only changes John's life, but it changes the course of humanity. Jesus, as he predicted, comes back to life, and in turn, he opens the door for John, he opens the door for you, and he opens the door for me to not only just put our trust in him, but to have eternal life. And this is John's reason for writing his account years later as an old man, that you would believe and that you would have the same life-changing experience that John did. So we're into week six of our seven-part series, Seven Signs, and last week we looked at how Jesus walked on the water on the Sea of Galilee. Like I said at the beginning of the series, when you track Jesus' ministry over the course of three years, he often ministers to the north and then the south, and then the north, and then the south, and then the north, and the south. He goes from, he goes from Galilee up in the north, where, where, he, was, where he was born and raised. He, he's, he goes from up there down to the holy city of Jerusalem in, in Judea in the south. Now, Galilee is a pretty fairly safe place for Jesus. Jerusalem or, or Judea is not. Because anytime Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he says and he does things that really upset the religious leaders. They don't recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy and is the Messiah. They just see him as another zealous radical that gets the people all stirred up with teachings that seem to contradict their beliefs. And if they get the people riled up, then Rome, who has control over the whole area, is going to intervene in their Jewish way of life and culture, which Rome has allowed them to to continue to do, will be no more. And often when Jesus appears in Jerusalem, his life is in jeopardy. And by extension, so are John's lives and the 11 others. And so that's where our story begins. 
Jesus spent time in the north teaching and regrouping. And now they've made their journey back to Jerusalem. They've taken the four or five day trek down to Jerusalem. So we jump into John chapter 9 to hear John's account, verse 1. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi? His disciples asked him. Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? So the disciples are traveling with Jesus, and they see this man. And maybe this is a debate that's been kind of privately going on in the background, where they're like, we're not sure. And here's a perfect example. Now we'll finally get Jesus to settle it for us. And so they say, Jesus, you see that guy sitting over there? And they're likely whispering, because, I mean, that would be kind of rude. See that guy over there? Settle this for us. Is he blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And in that culture, there really were only two options. In that culture, there was this belief that if you were dealing with some sort of disability, it was a result of your disobedience or the disobedience of your ancestors or your parents. It was God's punishment for something. But the disciples are confused because they've seen babies born, or maybe they've heard the, 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 the story of this man that he was born with this, this disability. And they can't figure out how could the infant have angered God so much. So Jesus, set it straight, because surely somehow this guy is getting what he deserves, right? It's got to be his parents, right? Now, you and I know that sometimes we do get what we deserve because of our behavior, Like if I steal my neighbor's car when I go home from here today, I will end up spending some time in jail. It's actually what I deserve. And usually when we suffer consequences, we can always kind of figure out what the cause and effect is. This this, this behavior or this habit caused this consequence. But we also know that there are consequences that we suffer that we didn't bring on ourselves. We can't draw a line back to what the cause was. Ask anyone who's been diagnosed with a disease that just kind of came out of nowhere or or is in a car accident that had nothing to do with their driving. And so the question becomes, when someone faces hardship or is dealt a tough hand in life, who's to blame? The person or is it their parents? And Jesus responds, verse 3, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Jesus answered. He looks at me, he's like, guys, you're way off track with this one. You believe that there's two options, but I tell you, it's actually neither. And then Jesus says something that when you read it, it should make you pause for a moment. He says, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. See, when John heard this the first time, he likely did a double take. What, what, Jesus, what are you saying? Jesus basically was saying, he said, and he'd say this in other places as well. He teaches them in this moment that pain can have a purpose, that pain and suffering can have a divine purpose. And he didn't just say it with no regard for what he was saying, because he knew that it wouldn't be too long before he himself would suffer the most excruciating pain. And he knew that it too would serve a divine purpose. And as we'll find out, the blind man in this story, his pain, his suffering will serve a purpose as well. And perhaps, perhaps your pain, perhaps your suffering also serves a purpose as well. And so Jesus says, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. In other words, sometimes God will display his power through our pain and suffering. 
I mean, you've seen it, right? You've seen someone go through something terrible. The pain and suffering is excruciating. And yet their response is something that you will never forget. Their, their response actually caused your faith to grow. October 2nd, 2006, Matt Swatzel, a 20-year-old rookie firefighter paramedic, got in his vehicle and headed home after a grueling 24-hour shift. And as he drove home, he nodded off for just three or four seconds. But that was all it took to cross over the center lane and hit another car head on. Inside the other car was 30-year-old June Fitzgerald and her 19-month-old daughter, Faith. All parties were rushed to the hospital. June's husband, Eric Fitzgerald, a local pastor, got the call about his wife and his young daughter, and he got into his car and he rushed to the hospital as quick as he could. When he arrived, he was delivered the news that would change his life. June had not survived. And not only had June not survived, but their seven-month unborn baby had not survived the crash. His daughter, however, Faith, was relatively unharmed. Yet Eric was devastated. In another hospital room, Matt, who had survived the accident, was being filled in as well. An officer told him of the tragic news of what his moment asleep at the wheel had caused. He also was devastated. He said, I'm supposed to be a helper. The EMT and the paramedic and the fireman that helps in these tragic situ situations. And here I am. I caused this. The police then approached Eric to see if he wanted to pursue the maximum sentence against Matt. But the newly widowed father, he chose a different path. He said, I remembered somebody said in a sermon, in moments where tragedy happens or even hurt, there's opportunities to demonstrate grace or to exact vengeance. Here was an opportunity where I could do that, and I chose to demonstrate grace. The judge gave Matt community service and a fine. The two men never met each other. That is until the second anniversary of this tragic event. Matt went into a grocery store to buy a condolence card to send off to Eric. Eric happened to be in the same store at the same time. Eric bought the card, or sorry, Matt bought the card, walked out to his truck, and when he looked up, he saw Eric walking towards him in the parking lot. Matt instantly broke down crying. And Eric, without saying a word, put his arms out, wrapped them around Matt, and held on to him. Matt said, this was the biggest relief I'd ever felt. He just said from the start that he forgave me. He said, just hearing him say those words, it impacted my life completely. The man would go on to talk for two hours. And then Eric told Matt that he felt God had spoken to him and that the two men were to stay connected. Matt said he felt the same. The two men became friends. And although, although today they no longer live in the same town, they check in on each other and are forever connected. Now, when you hear that story, no one, and I mean no one, would ever wish that kind of pain on either of these men. But God can find a purpose in our pain. 
And so Jesus turns to his disciples while he says this. He says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. To which the disciples are like, did he hear us? I mean, why does he always do this? We ask him a question, and it seems like he answers like a different question. Jesus, we're talking about the blind guy, and then Jesus continues, but while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. But here's the point Jesus is trying to make, and here's the point of John's gospel. He's saying the identity of who I am will never be more apparent. While I walk this earth, the light will never be brighter. Watch me, follow me, and believe. Because one day I will leave, and I'm going to pass the torch off to you. And then, and then our story takes a real turn. Because this poor man, he's blind. He's perhaps heard the rumors about Jesus, that, that Jesus is in the area. And maybe he's heard some of the things he could do. And maybe he's hearing more than we think. And he's hoping, he's hoping that Jesus will notice him. He's hoping that Jesus will, 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 will just show a little bit of mercy on him. And then he hears among the chatter a sound of spit. Verse 6. Then he, Jesus, spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. It gives us no other details. I mean, did he tell the man he's about to do this, or did he just slap some spit mud in his eye? I mean, we don't know. Verse 7 says, he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So Jesus tells him, go. He gives him instructions, just go, go wash. And this man literally walks by faith and not by sight. And I don't know when this occurred to John. Okay, maybe he told this story for years without fully recognizing that what he witnessed was a sign. But John would realize that God would later ask future generations to do the same thing that Jesus asked this man to do. Trust someone that you physically cannot see based on what you've heard about him. Walk by faith when you can't walk by sight. Later in John 20, Jesus would say to his disciples, blessed are you guys because you've seen and you've believed as a result. But truly blessed are those that don't and yet they still choose to put their trust in the testimony. And the story says, so the man went, washed, and came back seeing. And so he heads home to tell everyone. Like, he's excited. Of course he is. It's the first time he's been able to see anything. And verse 8, his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, nah, he just looks like him. So the beggar kept saying, hey, guys, yes, no, I'm the one. I'm the same one. And they asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus, you know, guys, you, we, you've, you've heard about Jesus, right? I mean, some of you said you even saw him. He, he came and he made mud and he spread it over my eyes and he told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. And then, of course, they asked a question that you and I would ask if we were in the same situation. Where is he now? And they asked, they asked and he, he says, I don't know. I mean, guys, honestly, I was blind. I don't know which way he went. 
So if you remember from the healing of a lame man a couple of weeks ago, anytime someone was disabled or deceased, or sorry, diseased, they, they cast out they cast them out of the temple. They cast them out of society. And it was thought that they were also cast out from the good graces of God. Because God, they, they, there was a feeling that they were this way for a reason. And so if you were healed of a disease or, or, or the disease went away, then in order to get back in, someone would bring you before the religious leaders to make it official. And so verse 13, Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, because it was on the Sabbath. Oh boy. Here we go again. He's done it again. Will Jesus ever learn? Because it was the Sabbath that Jesus made the mud and healed him. See, according to Jewish tradition, there are many things you could not do on the Sabbath. One of those things you could not do was knead. Knead with a K. As in mixing flour and water and kneading it into bread. Well, Jesus had now broken the Sabbath because technically he took some dirt and some spit and he kneaded it into mud. And, and, and also, as we established a couple weeks ago, no one could give any medical attention unless it was life or death, which this most certainly was not. Verse 15, the Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, well, he, he put mud over my eyes and then I washed it away and I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath. Like, how could this be God if he's working on the Sabbath? Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So it was this deep division among many of them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind. They're at this spot where they're like, we're not going to attribute this power to Jesus. So the only other answer is that you're not actually blind. So they, they, they refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. Now, I'm sure his parents were petrified. Because if the Pharisees summons you on the Sabbath, well, it's probably not because they're going to present you with a medal and a gift certificate from Montana's. Verse 19, they asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he see now? His parents replied, we, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. And what we see here, what we see here is a lot of blindness in this story. And none of that blindness is from the blind man who can now see. The blindness comes from the Pharisees. Because they've made a whole bunch of assumptions of what God is like, and we're not willing to look past any of those assumptions. The version of God that they had created fit their agenda and fit their comfort level. And even if he was standing in front of them, they weren't willing to see him for who he truly was. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's your spouse. Maybe it's your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate. Maybe they've already decided what God is really like. And perhaps the idea of where they've discovered what God was like is faulty. Because maybe they had a bad experience with someone who called themselves a Christian. 
But there was there, what, when they came across this person, all they got was, was anger and judgment and nastiness. And, and they thought, you know what? If Christians are like God and God is like this guy, no thanks. Or maybe their idea God came from how he's portrayed in media. Or, or maybe they experienced a tragedy and came to the conclusion that a loving God would never have allowed that to occur. And so they turned their back on that God. But like the Pharisees, they have put God in a box with restraints and are blind to seeing anything that's outside of those boundaries. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this Jesus. He's a sinner. See, they're still not convinced because Jesus does not fit in their version of God. So they tell the man, okay, we believe you that you're healed, but God did this. That's the only thing that makes sense. Not this sinner, not this radical, not this troublemaker Jesus. Verse 25, the man says, I don't know whether he's a sinner, but I know this. I was blind. Now I can see. And so he replies to him, like, listen, I can't give you the details. There was a man. I heard rumors of what he's done and who he might be. And then there was some mud. I'm not even sure where the mud came from. I'm not even sure what that had to do with anything. In fact, the more I think about it, there's more that I don't understand than what I do. But all I know is this. I once was blind, but now I see. I also know this. I don't have to understand it all to believe something. And here's the great news for you today. Neither do you. Because for some of us, or the people around us, our belief in God has a barrier. And that barrier is, is that we can't explain everything. Therefore, we become skeptical of anything. You know people that struggle with having faith in God because they won't believe anything until they understand everything. But we don't keep that standard in other areas of our lives. We talked about gravity a few weeks ago. Do you believe in gravity? Of course you do. Do you understand it fully? I don't, but I believe in it. Do you believe in love? Do you fully understand it? Do you believe in wind? Do you fully understand that? I mean, we have so many areas in our lives that we've accepted without fully understanding it. But when it comes to faith, many people have walked away or they've chosen not to get any closer because they don't understand all of it. To which Jesus would say, in the same way he said to John or Matthew, take a step of faith, follow me, and I will help you believe. The story continues back in verse 25 again. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. For some of you that are watching today, that's your story. You, you came to this point in your life where you were just at the end of your rope. Or you couldn't take it anymore. You were struggling. And you didn't know. And you cried out to God in desperation. And God made clear to you something that you didn't see before. For some of you, it was instant. But for some of you, it was like a dirty window that you take Windex to. And layer after layer of dirt, you took off and took off and took off. Until slowly over time, 
things became clear. And he says to them, listen, I can't explain it all to you. But I know as I was blind, now I see. The rest, I'll let you figure that out. Verse 26, the Pharisees, they're just, they're still going in on this guy. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? And, and this guy at this point is just, he's frustrated. He says, look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? That didn't go over so well. Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where this man comes from. This man, again, he's lost his patience with the Pharisees at the point. He says, well, that's very strange. The man replied, he healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? Because we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he's ready to hear from those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no, one's a, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man was not from God, he couldn't have done it. To which they said, you were born a total sinner. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. See, in this moment, it's so obvious the Pharisees are blind. In fact, they're ignorant. They do not want to see what is right in front of them because they've already made up their minds. And, and when you see somebody like that, you cannot, can't reason with, they will not listen. It's not a flattering look for anyone. It's actually called confirmational bias, where you only hear what you want to hear and you only see what you want to see. And we've seen that in spades during this season. We've seen that in spades on social media. People are so divided about all kinds of things. And we have a tendency to only listen to the people that back up the points that we've already decided that make sense to us. And we will only read articles by people who actually confirm the things that we already, we already know or the things that we already think. And when you do that, you shut yourself out from learning anything new. And when you do that, you often miss the truth, even when it's standing right in front of you. You see, Christians, Christians aren't innocent of this. I mean, historically, the church has been resistant to anything scientific because we think it's actually, science is in direct opposition to God. But when we peel it back and we look, we know that science only reveals God. At times, the church has shown resistance to people who don't look like us, think like us, or act like us. And we actually have become a barrier at times between them and God. And when we do that, do we not look a lot like the Pharisees that decided how God could and should operate and then couldn't even see him when he stood there in front of them? See, as Christians, our aim, our goal is to be like Jesus full of grace, and full of truth. Because when we're full of truth, but we lack grace, it becomes a license to mistreat the people that God loves. And in turn, we can't even see God when he's in front of us. And that's tragic. When we are full of grace, but we lack truth, we think we love people better, but we actually love them worse. Because God loves you too much to let you say, stay steeped in your sin. Truth is required. 
And so John would watch all of this take place. And while it was the sight of the blind man that was restored, John's blindness to who Jesus truly was was fading at the same time. He recognized this was a sign. You don't have to understand everything to believe something. And Jesus says, if you will take a step, take a step of faith, and you will follow me, you, like the blind man, will one day make the claim, I was once blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord, like the blind man, there's many of us that maybe have some wrong ideas about who you are. Or maybe we've already determined in our heads who you are and we're not open to learning more about you, to, to expanding who you are. Because God, you are so much bigger than any of us actually can comprehend. So God, as a church, or as the church, we repent of the ways in which we have judged people, the ways in which we have been a barrier between people and you. God, that may we not just put people into a box and believe that only people who act like this and look like this can be loved by you. God, may we be open. May we celebrate anytime someone comes closer and moves closer towards you. God, may we be a church that's full of, full of truth and grace. May we have grace overflowing for people. We're a church of second chances and third and fourth and fifth chances. But God, may we also be a church of truth that speaks the truth, but we do so with compassion and love. And so God, I pray this today for those that are listening. I pray that they would open their minds to what you may have to say and how you may reveal yourself to them. That maybe the idea they have of you is not complete. May we pursue you with everything. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.